Hello everyone, my name is Nancy Porter and it is my pleasure to read for you today articles from the March 27th, April 3rd, 2023 issue of Time Magazine. Uh, remember that you are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. The first article today is from the Society section. Headline, After three years of pandemic, our relationship with time has changed, maybe for the better. And the title of the article is Clockwise. It wasn't long after the pandemic began that people around the world started to notice something weird was going on. As the rhythms of daily life changed, some people's days seemed to run together. Others felt theirs stretched on indefinitely. The sense of what an hour felt like was corroding. News outlets filled with attempts to explain what was happening. Ruth Ogden, an experimental psychologist who studies time perception at Liverpool John Moores University in the United Kingdom, says she had only ever gotten maybe one interview request before the pandemic and has since received at least a hundred. And while the study of time is certainly not new, she says the volume and pace of academic publication on the topic seem to have increased too. Studies published since early 2020 have suggested, in no particular order, that dragonflies process the movement of time very quickly, while starfish do so slowly, that virtual reality and ADHD are both linked to difficulty judging how much time has passed, that time flies when you're making eye contact and seems to drag when you're guilty of hiding something and the International Bureau of Weights and Measures is even in the course of redefining the second, though that one happens to be a coincidence. Another attempt to get to the bottom of things has just arrived in the book called Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, a new book in which the artist Jenny O'Dell follows the threads she plucked in her best-selling 2019 debut book, How to Do Nothing, which found an eager audience in people looking for ways to shore up their souls against the drain of productivity culture, and arrives at a sweeping yet personal challenge to assumptions Western society makes about the relationships between individuals and the finite hours in a given day. COVID-19 was not the original impetus for the project. She says her interest was sparked when she kept hearing the old complaint from readers that they wanted to do nothing, but simply couldn't find the time to do nothing. Still, the pandemic not only provided a jolt to her writing process, if you're trying to blow up assumptions about time use, there's nothing like a worldwide shift in the way people spend their days to help the project along, but also helped create a world particularly eager to join in her re-examination. Lockdowns ravaged the routines by which we used to define our hours. What once had seemed as sure as the ticking of a clock was exposed as mere social construct. And then there was the virus itself. Everyone was faced with deaths, 
and really had that in their face every day, Odell theorizes. So the question of how do I spend my time, or what is my relationship to time, becomes a lot more urgent. Almost exactly three years after the World Health Organization declared a pandemic, with so many of the lifestyle changes of COVID-19 reverting to the previous status quo, Odell's book arrives at what could be a turning point. The pandemic created a window in which almost everything, from office culture to trust in the government, could be up for debate. Time itself was no exception, which for many represented a major shift. The realization that decisions made by mere humans can shape something so fundamental. And once you've realized it, you also know that you have some control over your own experience of it. Now, in the return to normal, we'll find out what we learned will stick and perhaps will give us new models for happier relationships with time. To be sure, time in a physics sense, rather than a psychology sense, is a different story. There, it takes something like a black hole, not a lockdown, to mix things up. Perhaps fittingly, then, Carlo Rovelli, the Italian physicist and author behind 2017's book, The Order of Time, says he doesn't see the past few years as likely to have changed much in this area. And, if widespread reflection did have an impact, he doesn't see that lasting once the crisis passes. But that reversion, others argue, is not a foregone conclusion. I think people don't quickly forget that there was a one to three year period of their lives where they lived in a very different way than before, says Oliver Berkman, author of the popular 2021 book titled 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. A 5% difference in how you spend your time as a result of an experience like the pandemic is huge. Which way does Odell think things will break? Only time will will tell, she deadpans, but then adds, I do think there are certain things, once you've seen them, you cannot unsee them. What Odell can't unsee is the fact that the pre-pandemic mainstream Western way of thinking about time isn't the only way. Her conclusion, after studying how those norms came about and how they're put to use today, is that time is not so much money, but power. When people say they don't have time, what they mean is they don't have control. That lack of autonomy may come from a demanding boss, an internal voice, or existential-level problems like climate anxiety. Odell uses the concept of a Zeitgeber, from the German for time-giver, to discuss the symptoms that determine how our experiences of time are structured. The examples she gives range from a child's school schedule to the user experience design of a gig work app. One way for the powerless to find some control, she posits, is to reject the most basic assumptions of the system that keeps them down. In indigenous societies, for example, 
she finds alternatives to the kind of clock-based living that can feel natural, but really isn't. In fact, she believes, rigid ways of thinking about the future are holding us back from productive attitudes toward the fate of the planet. Her own epiphany during the pandemic was that her time was not so much hers as it was created within relationships. One clear example she cites in the book is the siesta, a time-use norm that exists only as long as a culture decides collectively that it should. She pushed herself, while acknowledging the privilege of being able to do so, to see ours not as a personal resource to expend, but as a material that was molded by the way she and others chose together to use it. It was almost as if a grid had been lifted off the topography of time, she recalls. Of course, Odell wasn't the only one encountering a new experience of time. Researchers like Ogden, the psychologist, moved their work outside the lab because of COVID-19 and took advantage of the unprecedented moment to conduct studies all over the world, asking people how the pandemic affected their impressions of time. The fact that having your life messed up can alter the experience of time's passage is not a new revelation. As Ogden pointed out in one paper that came out of her work during this period, decades of studies, including of families locked in fallout shelters during the 1960s, confirmed that life feels different if you stop being told what time it is. But, she argues, the pandemic was the first significant proof that it doesn't take a nuclear bunker to see that effect. You can be in your home, with your roommate, the clock on your microwave glowing, your inbox filling with emails, and still feel that the hours have come unglued from expectation. And those studies arrived just at a moment when people were inclined to be interested in the results. That's because, Ogden suggests, you had this period of time in which life stopped, but time continued. And I think that got us all much more aware of the idea that time is finite and it's valuable. And when it's lost, or when you can't control it, it feels weird. And you want to know why it feels weird. That said, this shift might not have happened were it not for a conference held years before the pandemic. When Mark Whitman, a cognitive neuroscientist at the Institute for Frontier Areas of Psychology and Mental Health in Freiburg, Germany, was a doctoral student a few decades back, he says even a major neuroscience or psychology conference might have just one symposium or presentation related to time. Then, about a decade ago, the European Union supported a networking drive that brought together time and timing scholars across countries and disciplines. It all culminated in 2014 in Corfu, Greece, at the first international conference on timing and time perception. Since then, Whitman says, there's been a snowball effect of interest. More people are getting professorships related to their focus on time perception, and those professors have students, and those students become professors who study new aspects of time. 
Arjuro Vatakis, an experimental psychologist at Pantheon University in Athens and an organizer of that Corfu conference, said the biggest change in the past decade is an increase in research that focuses on questions relevant to everyday life. The pandemic only furthered that trend. Now, the fact that we lose track of time, or time seems to pass fast or slow, she says, became on the forefront of what people were talking about. Case in point, Whitman and Vitakis are among the 32 contributors to the Blur's Day database, which compiles survey results from nearly 3,000 people in nine countries who were asked about their experience of time during the COVID-19 pandemic. Those studies confirmed, among other findings, that the less isolated individuals felt not locked down, the closer in time past and future events seemed to be. In other words, isolation makes time drag. In the absence of commutes, many of us learned something similar to Odell's takeaway, that our days can be shaped instead by community. And maybe that's a better way to live. Of course, knowing that the brain's experience of time can be shaped by our relationships doesn't necessarily mean it's easy to reset our internal clocks. If you don't feel in control of your time, that's not necessarily your fault. Where Odell concerns herself with the systemic societal and economic structures that constrain us, Ogden cautions that the way trauma alters one's experience of time's passage is a biological process that cannot be self-helped away. That said, there are certain things that people who spend all day thinking about time do to seize what control they can have over it. Ogden, for one, finds comfort in using her knowledge of the fallibility of time perception to remind herself that negative periods came to an end faster than perhaps seemed they did. Whitman says he is more aware of the way that breaking out of one's emotional routine can keep it from feeling as if the fun times are flying by too quickly. Looking for additional depth in your feelings, he says, can create the kind of variety that can make a good moment seem to have lasted. Vitakis, for her part, hopes her current research project, meant to figure out how to purposefully modulate our experience of time in order to increase well-being, allows us to use our knowledge of time's malleability to live better lives, rather than suffer passively the fickleness of the clock. And with the Blur's Day data available online, there's hope that this era's trove of studies will inform time perception research for years to come. As for Jenny O'Dell, she has come out of the project of saving time, preaching a kind of mindfulness marked by a loving, curious, fascinated feeling of interest in time, as she puts it, living in the now without thinking about it so much that it can't be enjoyed, seeing time as a series of moments, each as rich as the meaning we put into it. She finds that balance in nature in collective action, in friendship, appropriate for someone who now defines time as both the context for and the output of relationships. 
Maintaining that perspective is anything but simple and is sure to only get harder as the gravity of the pre-pandemic status quo gets stronger. But maybe it'll be easier if we know we are not alone in the quest. Together, it turns out, we can make time for ourselves. And again, I must remind you that you are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print-impaired, and materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, let's m now move on to the second article from the uh, March 27th, April 3rd, 2023 issue of Time magazine. It's titled, From the Nation, The Mailman by Eric Condalesa. Initially cast as a Trumpian villain, Louis DeJoy is delivering for the Postal Service and the Democrats. Louis DeJoy thought his workday was done as he arrived home one evening in February of 2022. The Postmaster General was locked in a grueling month-long battle with Congress over a bill to shake up the Postal Service. But as he settled in, his cell phone rang, and pulling it out, he saw who was calling and could already guess why. It was Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The second most powerful Democrat in America wanted to know how the whip count was coming. As it happened, the count was coming along very nicely. DeJoy may be best known as the Trump-era GOP mega-donor the left accused of meddling with mail-in voting to subvert the 2020 election. But by the time Schumer called him on that frigid winter night, DeJoy was on his way to persuading congressional Republicans, 120 in the House and 29 in the Senate, to buy into a lengthy Democratic wish list of postal reforms. When President Joe Biden signed the landmark legislation into law two months later, it guaranteed a union-friendly version of six-day mail service and stabilized health coverage for the 650,000 USPS employees. There's no way we could have gotten the votes without Louis DeJoy, says Jim Sauber, the chief of staff for the National Association of Letter Carriers at the time. That's for sure. The notion that DeJoy, 65, would help advance a key Democratic agenda item would have seemed unfathomable a few years ago. But to the astonishment of many in Washington, the man Democrats once denounced as a threat to American democracy has become one of their most important allies in government. Defying the far right, he delivered more than 500 million COVID-19 test kits to Americans in the winter of 2022. He agreed to transition the Postal Service's entire fleet to electric vehicles by 2026. DeJoy's capstone collaboration with Democrats was the Postal Service Reform Act, which is arguably the most bipartisan piece of major legislation in the Biden era drawing more than twice as many GOP Senate votes as the $1 trillion infrastructure bill. DeJoy may be the only person on earth could, who could have delivered these wins for America's beloved, beleaguered agency. 
That's partly because of the perverse credibility his association with former President Donald Trump and the scandalous 2020 headlines gives him with Republicans. It's also his stubborn insistence that he wasn't going to allow allegations levied against him in the thick of an inflammatory political season to end up defining him. Sitting at a long oak table above a 4,000-square-foot Postal Service processing center outside Atlanta in February, DeJoy, sporting a tailored blue suit and a shiny silver Rolex, ticks off in his heavy Brooklyn accent the details of his demonization. Ad hominem attacks in the media, congressional scrutiny, lawsuits, federal investigations, even his children needed a security detail while they were off at college. It was hell, he says, but not enough to make him quit. I would not want to live the rest of my life if I had walked away because of this bullshit, he says. It's that simple. He had other reasons for staying, too. His Nixon to China-like efforts on the postal reform bill helped DeJoy secure a broad mandate to transform the agency. Drawing on his decades as a business executive, when he built and sold a logistics firm worth north of $600 million, DeJoy is enacting a 10-year plan, apart from the reforms, that aims to remake a delivery service that deals increasingly less with traditional mail and more and more with packages. The plan grows the agency, building new processing centers and centralizing the delivery network. It converts more than 100,000 part-time employees to full-time, and it adds new services, such as partnerships with local retailers to help them compete with Amazon. These potentially dramatic changes are a chief reason why the postal unions have embraced the self-made man who shares some of their blue-collar roots. Still, it won't be easy. DeJoy is a prickly but flexible businessman who has at times struggled to adapt to operating within the constraints of a government bureaucracy. When he ordered postal trucks to run on time in early July 2020, he set off a chain of events that led to a slowdown of mail delivery for weeks as trucks left their depots without any mail. The misstep helped fuel reports of attempts to undermine the 2020 election, reports that proved to be erroneous, but continue to fuel distrust of him among progressive people. While the unions and the Biden-appointed Democratic majority on the USPS Board of Governors have bought into his plan, there remains fierce resistance in Congress largely because it raises rates and relies more on trucks than planes to move mail, thereby slowing down the delivery of some first-class mail. He has faced multiple ethics probes, all of which appear to have been dropped. And there are plenty of Republicans who still would like to see the post office die through privatization. That remains a real possibility. When DeJoy started, the USPS was months away from running out of money. His mission, he says, is to make the Postal Service not only more efficient, 
but eventually profitable, something it has not been since 2006, and to beat out FedEx and UPS private delivery firms that pose an existential threat. Says DeJoy, that's what I'm trying to do, to set the organization up to compete. He has a personal stake in the effort. He is fighting for redemption, says Ron Bloom, a former Democratic member of the USPS Board of Governors. That's what he wants you to write, whatever he rides off into the sunset, that he executed the greatest corporate turnaround in history. Exhibit A in DeJoy's effort is the USPS Regional Processing Center in Atlanta. And as he walked through it in early February, he was eager to talk it up. The plant is replete with new equipment. Nowhere can you escape the hum of construction. Crews are installing charging stations for the soon-to-come electric vehicles. Postal workers keep approaching him. It's a far cry from where things were when he started. I used to walk into a plant and like one or two of them would walk over, he says. They would ask, hey, how's my buddy? They were talking about Trump. I was like, I don't know. I don't talk to him. DeJoy grew up in working-class Brooklyn, the son of second-generation Italian immigrants and the oldest of five children. DeJoy's father was frequently absent, he says, because he was on the road as a self-employed truck driver. By high school, DeJoy craved a different lifestyle. I was interested in money, he says with a smirk on his face. He was also desperate to escape. So, he enrolled in Stetson University in Florida, where he earned a degree in accounting. After graduating and spending a few years in Fort Lauderdale as a CPA, he was beckoned home. His father had been assaulted on the job and nearly killed. It was New York. It was the trucking business, DeJoy says in a matter-of-fact tone. He got beat up. While his father convalesced, DeJoy took control of the family business, changing the schedules, cutting expenses, adding new routes. The few years he planned to spend rehabilitating the company became a few decades, and new breed logistics grew from 10 employees to 10,000. In the 1990s, he relocated the headquarters to Greensboro, North Carolina, where his clients included Boeing, Disney, Verizon, the Department of Defense, and the Postal Service itself. In 2014, he sold the firm for $615 billion, I mean million dollars. As he built his future fortune, DeJoy became a major player in GOP politics. In 2000, he held fundraisers for George W. Bush. After Bush won, the president appointed DeJoy's wife, Aldona Walls, as U.S. ambassador to Estonia. In the years to come, their North Carolina mansion became a required visit for every serious Republican hopeful, including Trump, who as president offered DeJoy an ambassadorship. DeJoy turned it down. I wanted something I could fix, he says. DeJoy remained on the board of another logistics firm and a real estate investment shop. But then, in January 2020, he got a call from a USPS recruiter. They wanted to talk to him about becoming Postmaster General. 
Roman Martinez, a Trump-appointed member of the USPS Board of Governors, who helped lead the search, says DeJoy beat out hundreds of others because of his logistics expertise, but faced potential Democratic opposition in the Byzantine process required to get the job. We knew he would have a bullseye on his back because of his Republican connections, Martinez says. But we felt that what he brought to the table was worth that risk because he was the kind of guy who could shake the place up, and the place sure needed shaking up. DeJoy wanted a fix-it project. He was getting one. In April 2020, his predecessor warned that the agency was at risk of financial insolvency by the fall. When DeJoy took the helm on June 16th, with the pandemic raging and demand for mail-in voting surging countrywide, it wasn't clear the agency would be able to deliver last-minute absentee ballots in time. Trump, who despised mail-in voting, made matters worse by trashing the USPS and refusing to sign the first COVID-19 relief bill until Congress removed increased funding for the agency. A month into the job, DeJoy made a consequential snap decision. He had learned that mail trucks were routinely leaving behind schedule, as drivers would wait for more mail to come in. Even then, they were less than half full. DeJoy told his deputies to run the trucks on time. The decision was made in a style that even DeJoy's defenders characterize as more befitting a corporate executive than a high-level bureaucrat. At first, it seemed to be going swimmingly. I'm getting reports saying the trucks are running on time, DeJoy recalls as he pumps his fists in the air and laughs. Look at this, we're doing great. But there was one problem. Nobody's telling me we're not putting the mail in the trucks. The snafu led to major slowdowns in mail service, causing a national panic. Americans were relying more on the post office amid the pandemic, and within months, millions of voters were expected to vote by mail. The problem was resolved a few weeks later. DeJoy set up a new team to monitor operations and troubleshoot any lingering issues. But the debacle helped fuel an emerging narrative that DeJoy, a major Trump donor, was out to sabotage the election. DeJoy's antagonists also started spreading allegations that he was whisking away sorting machines and iconic blue mailboxes to subvert the vote. In fact, the USPS had been cutting back the boxes for decades because of the declining use of first-class mail, and the sorting machines were obsolete and had been sitting under tarps according to Amber McReynolds, a Biden appointee on the Board of Governors. McReynolds was, at the time, working closely with the Postal Service as CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute and has emerged as a DeJoy defender. I tried to correct disinformation as much as I could, she says. DeJoy was also falsely accused in the press and by some in Congress of eliminating overtime for postal workers. Union leaders insist otherwise. 
Believe me, if they cut off overtime, our members would tell us, says Sauber, the former senior postal union official. With Trump openly undermining the vote, Democrats were nevertheless convinced that DeJoy was scheming to hamper Democratic turnout. It was a deliberate and malign effort to disrupt that election in favor of Trump, says Representative Jerry Connolly of Virginia. In August, state attorneys general and activist groups filed lawsuits accusing DeJoy of trying to disenfranchise voters. Speaker Nancy Pelosi interrupted the House's summer recess to vote to revoke any USPS policy changes until after the pandemic. Amid the uproar, DeJoy announced he was suspending those measures to avoid even the appearance of impacting the election. When he testified before Congress, his image as a Trumpian villain only grew. One Democratic lawmaker asked him, Is your backup plan to be pardoned like Roger Stone? DeJoy, defensive and combative, didn't win over any adversaries. By September, a federal judge had said he tried to tamper with the vote. Ultimately, voting by mail was a resounding success. DeJoy embraced a union idea to expedite mail ballot delivery and set up a panel to monitor election mail. As a record 43% of Americans voted by mail, the USPS handled more than 135 million ballots. Roughly 94% were processed on time. 94% of those were processed on time. And 99% made it to election boards within a week. We had the best delivery rates on election mail that we've ever had, says McReynolds. At the start of the Biden administration, many assumed DeJoy's days as postmaster general were numbered. Others had different ideas. With all the outcry and all the Trump this and Trump that, says Fred Rolando, then the president of the National Association of Letter Carriers, I just saw opportunity. Rolando and a group of union heads and key Democrats believed DeJoy's standing with the GOP could be the ticket to passing postal reform, which a small bipartisan group of lawmakers had been pushing for years. Then Representative Carolyn Maloney, the chair of the House Oversight Committee at the time, brokered a compromise with Representative James Comer, the Kentucky Republican U union leaders, and DeJoy. The main priority, they all agreed, was repealing a George W. Bush-era mandate that required the Postal Service to prepay health plans for retirees, an onerous requirement imposed on no other federal agency. By ending the prefunding requirement, the agency would be free of $58 billion of liabilities. Many GOP lawmakers reflexively saw the proposal as a bailout, but DeJoy was uniquely positioned to convince them otherwise. The key to getting Republican support for me was to prove to Republicans that we had the right person in place to make the reforms, says Comer. You can't reform a government agency with a career 
bureaucrat. It wasn't easy on the other side of the aisle either. Maloney took considerable heat from her own party for working with DeJoy. I used to tell them, do you want to fire him or do you want to wear postal reform, she says. DeJoy's lobbying efforts reached a peak in February of 22, when Comer brought him to Capitol Hill to address the entire GOP caucus. There were a lot of undecideds, Comer recalls. Once they listened to him talk from a business standpoint and how he was specifically going to cut losses at the Postal Service without harming performance, I think they were sold. The next day, the legislation passed the House with 342 votes. In the Senate, DeJoy kept in regular touch with Schumer and the bill's two co-sponsors, Democrat Gary Peters of Michigan and Republican Rob Portman of Ohio. Bloom, a former USPS Board of Governors member, remembers Peters telling him, I can't get the Republican votes without DeJoy. It passed the 50-50 Senate with 79 votes. DeJoy's pivotal role in breaking a 20-year logjam didn't earn him an embrace from Biden. The White House didn't invite him to the bill signing ceremony until the night before. The event itself would leave the public with no clue that the postmaster had anything to do with the bill. DeJoy was not mentioned in the president's remarks and was not on stage for the signing. He was sitting in the back of the room. But DeJoy is not one for hard feelings. Six months later, after Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act allocating $3 billion to help the Postal Service go electric, he reached out to John Podesta, Biden's climate advisor. By Christmas 2022, they announced the plan for the USPS to fully electrify in four years. Given the earlier track record, I didn't know what to expect, says Podesta. We ended up, I think, respecting one another. He walked into an institution that had a lot of issues, but I think he has tackled them in a way that has brought over his skeptics, of which I probably counted myself among them. There have been other victories and vindications. Last winter, he worked with the White House to deliver half a million COVID-19 test kits to Americans across the country. Roughly 60% of the orders were fulfilled within 24 hours, 90% within 48 hours. And there's no longer an ethical cloud hanging over his head. Both the Federal Election Commission and the FBI closed investigation into him related to campaign contributions. And the USPS Inspector General said he met all applicable ethics requirements related to disclosure, recusal, and divestment pertaining to his holdings with Postal Service contractors upon taking the job. All the while, DeJoy's 10-year plan to save the USPS is in motion. The new million-square-foot regional processing plant near Atlanta set to open next year, is one of 60 such facilities he aims to launch. How long DeJoy will be there to oversee the plan is another matter. 
His tenure as Postmaster General is up to the board and to him. DeJoy has his own metrics for success. Saving the USPS may be the only way to transcend his 2020 infamy. I hope all this stupid nonsense stuff is not on my obituary, he says. In the next two or three years, he says, the USPS may be transformed enough for him to move on. After that, I don't know if it's my last rodeo, says DeJoy. I feel pretty young. I got other things to do. And that concludes our readings from the March 27th, April 3rd, 2023 issue of Time magazine. Again, I remind you that you've been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and I've been happy to share Time Magazine with you. <laughs>